This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, what the hell is going on is we're talking about the spike in anti-Semitism that's happening here in the United States and quite frankly around the world. I was just in New York recently for Fox and I just turned on the local New York news and it was nothing but a stream of stories about attacks on Jewish people. An old Jewish man beaten over the head as he was walking down the street. There was a father and his young son who were coming out of a kosher grocery market, and somebody in a car drove by with a BB gun and shot the kid and his dad. You know, it's happening everywhere. What the hell is going on? Well, this is a subject of a broader conversation that we're having with our guest today. I think that, you know, in times of turmoil, in times of economic hardship, like the financial crisis, in times of uncertainty, like the last two years with COVID. We blame the Jews. You blame the Jews. Exactly. When things aren't going right, blame the Jews. And I think there's also been a certain mainstreaming of anti-Semitic ideas. You know, Kanye West is obviously, you know, the most famous, completely insane anti-Semite to take the airwaves. But, you know, Kyrie Irving plays for, wait a minute, is it the New York Knicks? You know me in sports. Oh, I have no idea. Uh, Well, okay. I'm not a basketball (laughs) fan. I'm a hockey fan. I have no idea. That's right. I don't know anything about basketball. (laughs) Hockey fans are not anti-Semites. Only basketball players. But look, you're seeing it in New York, but you see it everywhere. You see it all over social media. You see it all over the place. You see it in California. You see certainly in Europe. Anti-Semitism is on the rise everywhere. And in each case, it is a desire to ascribe all that is wrong with the world to the Jews. The whole Kanye West thing is just so baffling to me. I mean, first of all, Kanye West is like hanging out with this white supremacist named Nick Fuentes. They've obviously united over their mutual hatred of the Jews. But you got to think, Nick Fuentes is a white supremacist. He hates black people, too. (laughs) Well, what what the hell is going on with that friendship? But who was it who said this is the true success of America? That you have a black man who who hates Jews and a white supremacist named Fuentes meeting with the former Republican president of the United States. What a great melting pot it is. And of course, what's the great unifier there? I mean, yes, I suspect that Donald Trump is not an anti-Semite, just an idiot, but he certainly has given currency and credence to both those people. And yeah, yeah, we've got multicultural uh, white supremacy here in America. It's I'm so proud. (laughs) I'm so proud of what our nation has become. But, you know, how much of this is wrapped up with anti-Israel behavior? And I think that that's a, a question for a lot of people. You know, the irony is that the American Jewish community, which is the object of so much not just anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish hatred, but also anti-Jewish hatred masquerading as anti-Zionism. Oh, no, no, I have nothing against the Jews. I just hate the apartheid state of Israel, that label, of course, being a favorite of the United Nations. And of course, the reality is that the backbone, the strongest part of America's pro-Israel community is not the Jewish community, it's the evangelical community. So even there- Even there, you've got a set of lies that associate Jews with, you know, policies that that people may disagree with incorrectly. Because so many Jews voted for that Republican Donald Trump, who, you know, moved the embassy to Jerusalem and did all these things for the Jews. The Jewish support was overwhelming for Republicans in in all these presidential elections. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it isn't. (laughs) <laughs> they're the most yeah, no, no, outside no, of not. black Americans. They're the most the Jews are the most uh, Jewish Americans are the largest, most loyal voting block of the Democratic Party 
that exist. No, that's exactly right. And what's interesting about that is not only is the Jewish community in America reliably well over 70% democratic in its political orientation, the attitudes of the incumbent in the White House, for example, a Democrat like Barack Obama, who was truly pretty unsympathetic to Israel, has absolutely no impact on Jewish support for the Democratic Party. So what can we say? You know, again, all of these calumnies that are visited upon the Jews have nothing to do with reality. Well, I mean, it's been that way since history. I mean, you know, the whole rise of the Third Reich was built on this idea that Jews were running the world, that Jews couldn't get FDR to allow the St. Louis to dock. <laughs> they had so much power over over the United States policy and power in the world. I mean, where were the Rothschilds when, when they needed them? And again, we're talking about this with our guest today, but this is one of the things that I absolutely love is that the nefarious Jewish power that lurks behind the media and lurks behind Hollywood and lurks behind international banking is only very occasionally competent. It did nothing about getting America to stand up against the Holocaust. It did nothing to get America to stand up against Hitler's Nuremberg laws. It did nothing to help America support the state of Israel for the first 20 plus years of its existence when its existence was genuinely in question. In fact, to the contrary, Stalin, that, you know, champion of Jewish freedom, Stalin did more for the state of Israel in the first years of ex its existence than Harry Truman or Eisenhower or any American leader. So this is completely fact-free. And of course, I mean, all bigotries are fact-free. They're based on hatred. They're not based on, you know, actual empirical data. But the calumny about the Jews is so unrelated to truth. You know, the New York Times, Mark, this is a statistic that always amazes me. The New York Times reporting on the Holocaust was so rare. Reporting on the plight of the Jews of Europe was so unusual that other papers did a far better job than the Jewish-owned New York Times ever did on any of these questions. You know, it's funny because we talked at the start about how anti-Semitism seems to rise when there's periods of financial trouble. I mean, obviously in, in post-World War I Germany, you know, they were looking for scapegoats and all the rest of it. But you also see, I mean, you know, cultures have characteristics. And the Jews, because they were such outsiders everywhere, because they were so rejected, they became incredibly hardworking and industrious. And so when you have a period where there's economic downturn, people turn against people who are successful. And right now you have a similar turn against Asian Americans and in admissions into colleges, right? Where Asian Americans, they're too successful. They're, they're, they're too hardworking. The students are too successful. And if you just by the merits allow, you know, race blind admissions into these colleges, there's a disproportionate number of Asians getting in. And so they're doing these holistic admissions to try and keep the Asian numbers down. That was actually started to stop the Jews from getting into these colleges, because what happened was when they started uh, allowing Jews to get into Harvard and Yale and all these Ivy League schools, they started admitting them when they were doing it just based on merit. So they started the process of holistic admissions to keep the Jews out. <laughs> and now they're doing the same thing to keep Asians out. What is ironic to me about all of this discrimination that is part of history is that these grievance groups have started to make very successful claims about reparations. There's a Supreme Court case now about anti-Asian discrimination at Harvard and at Yale and the Ivy Leagues. Where exactly is the compensation for Jewish people? The town that I grew up in had a, a country club that was the Jewish country club. Why have a Jewish country club? Oh, because the other country club was what was then called restricted, right? Neighborhoods were restricted. And it was not just that you couldn't sell to Black people or you couldn't sell to foreigners. You also couldn't sell to or admit Jews. And yet this one highly discriminated against community, this one extraordinarily small part of America, there's no embarrassment. There's no regret at that history. And what's amazing to me is that so much of the American Jewish community 
is completely uninterested in America's history of anti-Semitism. I find this whole thing hard to understand. I find Black anti-Semitism, and this is really a sort of a growth industry. Kanye West is just a, an indicator of the problem that has existed forever with the Nation of Islam, for example, and Louis Farrakhan. Black anti-Semitism is, to me, inexplicable. You want to talk about who were slaves before Black people were slaves? Jews were slaves. You want to talk about who marched in the civil rights movement with Black Americans when they didn't have rights? Jews marched for civil rights. Jews stood up for civil rights. And yet, anti-Semitism in the Black community is skyrocketing. In our interview, you get into this with our guest, Walter Russell Mead. Uh, I wasn't there, unfortunately, uh, but Danny did this interview. But he talks about the Nation of Islam, right? So my first job in journalism was uh, when I was in high school, I was in Connecticut, and I uh, w worked as a uh, student reporter for the Waterbury Republican American. And the first story I, they sent me to cover was Louis Farrakhan's speech at Wesleyan University. And so I went down to Wesleyan University to cover his speech. And there was a lot of protesters outside, a lot of students protesting him. But there was a one man standing out there in a full Ku Klux Klan regalia and holding up a sign that said, Hitler, six million, Farrakhan, nothing. And I went up to him to interview him. And he was the imperial grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, which, nice. interestingly enough, had its largest membership was in the state of Connecticut, <laughs> and, and, which I was shocked to find. And I asked him, are you protesting him because he's Black? And he said, I wouldn't care if he was a Polak. <laughs> nice. Lovely. Which is, apparently I get in there in that list of people they hate. But I mean, you know, you know he, was, he was complaining that, that Louis Farrakhan wasn't anti-Semitic enough. <laughs> well, you know, there's always someone. What have you done really for getting rid of the Jews? Hitler killed six million. You killed none. What are you, what are you, you're a, you piker? You know, I mean, we're laughing. But of course, you know, the Nation of Islam is not listed as a hate organization. The Nation of Islam is still accepted you know, as a, as a sort of a legitimate house of worship in the United States, which is just horrifying. But Raphael Warnock's good friend. Yeah, exactly. Well, but you know what? <laughs> what does it take to get someone like that elected to the United States Senate, Mark? <laughs> it takes Donald Trump. So well, we're not going to go there today. Exactly. There's a total other conversation to be had here. But what we're talking about in this podcast is, in addition to the, the resurgent problem of anti-Semitism, is America's relationship with Israel is absolutely fascinating. And one of the incredible things to me is that people suggest that the state of Israel would not exist, would not be as powerful as it is today without the support of the United States. And of course, the answer to that is the United States only really became interested in the state of Israel when it was actually powerful enough to defend itself. It is not America that is the savior of the state of Israel. It is Israel that is the savior of its own relationship with the United States. And this and so much more is the topic of our conversation with uh, Walter Russell Mead, somebody who I know you and I hold in hugely high regard. His new book, The Ark of a Covenant, the United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People was published earlier this year. I love it. I read it before it went to press. I read it after it went to press. And Walter is one of my favorite people. He's a columnist at the Wall Street Journal. He is a scholar at uh, our fellow think tank, the Hudson Institute, but he's written for pretty much everybody. And self-deprecating, thoughtful, not strident, and hilariously, as the author of this book, not Jewish, and yet <laughs> one of the one of, one of the most, I think, articulate advocates for not simply the U.S.-Israel relationship, but for a deeper understanding of why America actually does support the state of Israel. Here's Danny's interview. Walter Russell Mead. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. So you have been doing yeoman-like book publicity for this truly outstanding book, The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. And I want to 
talk to you about the book. But what I would love for you to do is to start with something that I know you've talked about and could you know wake up screaming in the night talking about again. Nonetheless, I think it goes to what I want to ask you about afterwards, including the, the rising anti-Semitism, the popularity of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, uh, because you deal with this so beautifully in your book. Tell us about the Vulcans. Uh, well, you know, in the 19th century, a very distinguished French astronomer ran some calculations and realized that there was something fishy about the orbit of Uranus. It, um, it wasn't where it was supposed to be, and he brilliantly concluded there must be another planet, a hidden dark matter hidden pulling it out of its orbit. And so he made some predictions, and another astronomer pointed a very powerful telescope at the right spot, and there was the planet Neptune swimming into view. Incredible. They both became famous. Their names are on the Eiffel Tower, etc. Well, this, this wasn't enough. Uh, immediately, the, I said, well, you know, that worked. Let's do it again. And he went back and he looked, and the planet Mercury's orbit is also out of, out of whack. And so he predicted another planet, this one very close to the sun, and some astronomers went and looked, you know, the dark matter pulling Mercury out of its orbit. And at a transit of the sun, of the, they saw it at, during a transit of Mercury. They saw the planet and they named it Vulcan for the Greco-Roman god who was burned because he was this blacksmith god very close to the fire. So planet Vulcan, which, by the way, is the planet they use in Star Trek. Mr. Spock. Yes, Mr. Spock, who very suspiciously used a Jewish priestly blessing as the Vulcan peace sign. So <laughs> I want to hear more about that in a second. Right. So uh, anyway, the, you know, clearly there, there must be this planet, and all kinds of famous scientists saw it, including Thomas Edison. But, the, but it kept not quite checking out. People said, well, maybe there's two planet Vulcans. Never really quite worked. And then Einstein came along and said, well, actually, the planet Mercury isn't being pulled out of its orbit, but the gravitational waves of the sun, which I explain in my theory of relativity, are creating the appearance of a wobble in Mercury's orbit. So in my book, I use... The, the idea of Vulcanism, the quest for planet Vulcan, as being all the folks who say, wow, you know, whenever Israel comes up, the, the America, which normally orbits the sun of its nat- national interest in a stately, predictable orbit, it wobbles. Something weird happens, and there must be dark matter, dark Jewish matter, that is pulling America out of the orbit it, quote, should be in. So I use that Vulcanist and Vulcan theory are people who are engaged in and in many cases think they've actually seen how, quote, the Jews, unquote, are running America, and that's why we have the Israel policy that we have. So, first of all, this is just a beautiful image, and you weave it throughout the book. In some ways, that's a a truly sad thing, because you have so many opportunities (laughs) to weave it throughout the book, because this is simply a perennial suspicion, not simply simply in in U.S. history, but really throughout history. So, I'm going to come back to Mr. Spock at the end, because I want everybody to listen all the way through. But, talk us through why... It isn't the dark matter of the Jews. I mean, I'm a Middle East specialist. I used to live in Israel. I, I know a lot about this. But, you know, if you're just a Martian, a Vulcan, visiting America, you look at it and you say to yourself, this is this country of 8 million Jews. They receive certainly per capita among the most U.S. assistant, not the most, but among the most U.S. assistants. We are committed to their qualitative military edge. We've come in on their side, not fighting, but certainly politically and militarily with weapons in their fights with the Arab world. Uh, We're the quote-unquote honest broker in their territorial dispute with the Palestinians. You know, we do seem to pay a lot of attention to the Jews, why is this not some nefarious dark matter issue? Yeah, I, you know, I, I really tried to look at the historical record for an answer. And I, and I do want to say that 
one of the reasons I picked the Vulcans as the way to, to talk about this Vulcan theory is I don't want to say people are anti-Semites because they're, they're mistaken about what's happening in the world of foreign policy. American foreign policy is one of the most complicated subjects there is. American politics is complicated, the world is complicated, and the United States is involved with countries all over the world. And great scholars have a hard time figuring out sometimes exactly what is going on. So naturally, people look for ways to simplify what's happening, to make sense. And as you were just saying, it's not obviously stupid to think, well, maybe the Jews have something to do with it. But I look, you know, for one thing, I look at the history. And and if the Jews ran the United States, you know, (laughs) if this were true, okay, I look at the 1930s when Hitler is rising in Germany and the Jews are being increasingly persecuted and the all-powerful Jews can't even get the U.S. State Department to give good treatment to German Jews trying to get out of Hitler's Germany. Not only that, they can't go to Congress and say, just let the Jews out. They couldn't really get the U.S. to do more than write a couple of diplomatic notes to the Germans. They couldn't get a boycott of Nazi German goods. They couldn't get American companies to disinvest from Nazi Germany. Then comes World War II. And again, the supposedly all-powerful Jewish leaders come to Franklin Roosevelt begging him to just release a few aircraft to bomb the rail lines leading to Auschwitz to slow down the mass murder. And they can't get that. But then suddenly in 1947, 1948, they look at Harry Truman's diplomacy, these Vulcan theories, and say, aha, the all-powerful Jews force Harry Truman to override the State Department and impose a pro-Israel policy on the United States. So somehow between 1944, when they can't bomb the rail lines to Auschwitz, and 1947, when they're forcing Truman hands, the Jews conquer America. But then amazingly, in 1952, when Eisenhower is elected, these all-powerful Jews lose control. I don't know what happened. Did a plague wipe them all out? I don't know. But, you know, the Suez crisis comes. Eisenhower sides with Egypt against not only Israel, but France and Britain. Mm -hmm. And all during the Eisenhower administration, when Israel is poor, when Israel could really use some help, the United States is actually siding with Nasser. And at one point, we're even plotting with Britain to figure out how do we give the Negev to the Arabs as a way of trying to make this whole problem go away. So the historical record does not support the idea that American Jews control our Middle East policy. So, okay, fair enough. You know, you make a credible argument, and and it's certainly credible to me, and you write very eloquently as well in the book about the the creation of the State of Israel. I think even many Jews, you know, believe that it was all Harry Truman's haberdasher that made it all happen because, of course, he was the main rapport with the Jews and blah de blah de blah de blah de blah I'm going to let people read that. But Israel isn't the baby state it was in the 1950s. It isn't, you know, a, a land of agricultural socialists and uh, Holocaust survivors anymore. Now, in fact, there are many who argue it's not even a Zionist state anymore. It's really a part of a part of the Middle East. And yet the United States is uh, has a policy in the region that I don't think Israel is, is at the center of the orbit because I don't think that's that's right. But I do think that Israel uh, plays a very prominent role as the prism through which many American leaders, Republican and Democrat, see the challenges we face. The Iranian, you know, nuclear weapon, for example. You know, India has a nuclear weapon. You know, so what? Pakistan has a nuclear weapon. So what? But no one else is allowed. And this is the argument, by the way, that Egypt likes to make as well. What's happened? Has there been a change in the, the body politic? Has the, you know, what our friends Walton Mearsheimer famously called the Jewish lobby actually learned and gotten a grip since 1980 or so? Well, I would say that, you know, you look back at some of the 
Jewish lobbying for Zionism in the 40s, and you realize these people really were very bad at the job. And <laughs> <laughs> absolutely no idea. People would sort of wait for them to come and go, say, spout their piece, and then get back to the real conversation. Um, and by the way, Herzl was, was also kind of a naive and often— The founder of Zionism. Yep, right. got involved in all kinds of— uh, ideas that, that really struck most statesmen as crazy. But there are a couple of reasons, I think, why Israel plays such a large role in American Middle East policy today. One of them has to do with foreign policy. One of them has to do with domestic. In foreign policy, the thing is that Israel and the United States, we disagree about a lot of things, and I'm sure we're going to disagree about more. But there's one bottom line thing we both agree on, and that is that neither one of us wants to see any power other than the United States strong enough to potentially stop the flow of oil from the Middle East to the rest of the world. Now, we want that because we want the stability of oil markets. And again, it's not that we need the oil. There was a time when we did need Middle Eastern oil in the United States. Today, we don't. Right. But we need for Japan and Europe, for example, to be able to get Middle Eastern oil in unpredictable terms at a reasonable price or their economies will crash, which would mean our economy would crash. So anybody who can stop the flow of oil in and out of the Middle East can sort of hold the world to ransom. We don't want that to happen. And from Israel's point of view, any power strong enough to do that is strong enough to threaten Israel's existence, whether it's an internal power like Iran or maybe in the future Turkey, or whether it's an external power like Russia or China, it threatens Israel's independence if any country dominates the Middle East. So on that fundamental question, Israel and the United States are kind of joined at the hip strategically. Right. And I think that, that fundamentally accounts for the modern relationship between the two states. And I think there's also, especially since 9-11, a shared interest in understanding about terrorism. There is, although that's somewhat more partisan in the U.S. It is. You know, so I'm, I was trying to stick to things that are universal, you know, that sort of across the spectrum of foreign policy, everybody sees it. But there, you know, there are other, there are other interests. Terrorism is one. Um, the tremendous success of the Israeli tech and arms industry, where, where thanks you know, the way American military aid works to Israel these days is they basically have to use it to buy stuff in the United States or work with Americans. Right. So That's kind of actually the way as, all of our foreign military financing works. Right. But in the Israeli case, what this has led to is an incredibly vibrant Israeli tech industry that produce, whether it's the Iron Dome missiles or other things, produces weapons that are extra and, and you know, sort of information processing abilities that are incredibly useful to us. And because we have this relationship with, with Israel, we can pretty much twist their arm and say, you can't sell it to our enemies or our, our opponents, but you can sell it to our friends. So we're trying to promote the India-Israel relationship as a way of strengthening India, strengthening cooperation and also a way of saying to Israel, you don't really have to work with China. There are other other countries. Okay, so I'm going to get to Kanye, but first I want to talk politics because you were trying to be uh, very uh, politically ecumenical, and Mark, uh, who couldn't be with us for this interview, nonetheless hates uh, ecumenical politics um, <laughs> and, and likes uh, firm, biased politics of the kind that we embrace on this podcast, although we think with good logic and good reason. My friend, Jonathan Tepperman, who is a mention, a lovely guy, reviewed your book for the New York Times. And uh, he raved about it. And I mean, he really raved about it. And Jonathan's not really a raving kind of a guy. Loved it, loved it, loved it. But of course, you know, you write a book review, as you've done so many, and as I have. Um, you got to say something bad, right? You just got to. The purpose of every book review is to convince the readers that if the reviewer had only thought it was worth the time, they could have written a much better book on the <laughs> subject. Every book review ever written, including those I write, has that at its core. I am happy to say that I don't believe that I could ever write a book better than the ones that I have reviewed, and certainly not better than this one, which embraces a fairness that I find rather difficult to show. <laughs> uh, but so, so Jonathan's criticism was that you were mean to Barack Obama. 
And that you were too nice to George W. Bush and to Donald Trump. Let's set aside the Donald Trump-Abraham Accords stuff just because Mark always talks about it endlessly and I'm tired of it. Uh, (laughs) So great not having Mark here. Um, I guess it's just like, hog all of the the microphone. But as it happens, I wholeheartedly agree with you. But obviously, there are many people whose um, Israel bona fides are outstanding who think that Obama was only right, was only fair. And, you know, more than 70% of American Jews vote consistently Democratic. They are the second largest constituency of the Democratic Party, except for black Americans, right? So, you know, what was wrong with Barack Obama? I think it was, he didn't grasp the strategic realities of the Middle East. If you had said to somebody in January 2009 when George W. Bush was leaving, war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan, America unpopular everywhere, a democracy agenda that is driving our friends and foes crazy in the Middle East, um, no person, no foreign policy observer would say eight years from now America will be less popular and the Middle East will be in worse shape. But that's what happened during the Obama years. American prestige was higher when George Bush left office, and American popularity was higher. Now, why? Several reasons. One is that I think Obama never understood the dynamics of the region in the sense he thought, well, the way to make peace is to make peace, and I am going to... I'm going to overcome the division between America and Islam. I'm going to hug the Sunni Muslims, the Sunni Arabs, and I'm going to hug the Shia Iranians, and everybody will will see what a great country America is and what a great person I am. And, you know, the trouble is that many people in the region perceived him as tilting away from the Arabs, not away from the Israelis toward the Iranians, but away from the Arabs and toward the Iranians. And so there was this sense of budding outrage, especially as the war in Syria got worse and worse, where Iranian-backed militias in alliance with Russia ultimately and the Syrian government were committing the worst crimes against Sunni Muslims that the world maybe has seen since the time of the Mongol invasions. And during all of this time, Obama is opening to Iran without really, I think, fully understanding the corrosive impact of that on his standing with the, with the Arab world. You actually got to a point where the Arabs and the Israelis were siding against the Obama administration's defense of Hamas in Gaza during the Gaza War of his administration. So you have this kind of tangle. Then you look at what happened in Egypt with the, quote, democracy revolution, where Hosni Mubarak, America's longtime friend, was overthrown. Basically, the Obama administration not only pushed him out, but pushed him out in a, in a particularly undignified way. This convinced all of our traditional friends in the Middle East that America is a wonderful ally as long as you don't need allies. Yes. But the moment you actually need help and you're in trouble, the Americans will turn on you like a wolverine and throw you away, throw you, throw you under the bus. But then what happens with the, when the Democrats come in? The Obama administration is completely unable to either help the Muslim Brotherhood government work or, you know, as public opinion turns against what was a fairly incompetent government, Though, to be fair, they faced a lot of passive resistance and slow walking from an Egyptian bureaucracy and state that basically wanted the old regime back. Nevertheless, the Obama administration sort of completely failed the Democrats in Egypt. And at the end, Sisi comes back. You have a tougher dictatorship in Egypt after Obama's human rights interventions and democracy interventions. And at this point, Everybody in Egypt, the liberals, the Islamists, the, the military people, there's only one thing they all agree on, which is the Americans are incompetent busybodies who cannot be trusted. Barack Obama, the great unifier. It's actually, it's actually in a lot of ways, true. It is true. And this is, you know, this is one of the reasons when, when I sometimes talk about Ameri- the special providence for the United States. My book, Special Providence, is even though American foreign policy is often 
often looks terrible and, in fact, is terrible. Over the long run, we come out a lot better than we deserve. We're kind of the Mr. Magoo of world politics. Well, you know, it's what Winston Churchill said. And, and I think, you know, we don't, we don't always end up doing the right thing, but sometimes we stop continuing to do the wrong right. thing. And it's true that, that mistrust of the Americans begins to bring the Arabs and the Israelis together mm-hmm. uh, because they, they, neither side thinks that we can be trusted against Iran. And so they start figuring out maybe we'll, we maybe need to work together to defend ourselves, but also maybe we need to work diplomatically together to see if we can't get a little bit more support from our friends in Europe and, and, and in the United States. Right. No, and it's Donald Trump who really should thank the Obama administration for laying the foundation for it's the true. Abraham Accords. It is absolutely true. Without the kind of self-defeating measures of Obama foreign policy, the Abraham Accords would not have been possible. Again, we can't call the Abraham Accords a triumph, a sort of a vote of confidence in Donald Trump. They were a vote of lack of con- They were still a vote of lack of confidence in the United States. Let's get to Jew hatred because it's topic one. You know, I guess for a lot of Jews uh, who have paid attention it never went away. Anti-Semitism is absolutely omnipresent and has been certainly since I was born and for long before that. Um, but it's really, really having a great popular resurgence right now. And I can't tell whether it's Kanye West or it's Donald Trump saying stupid stuff or it's Nick Fuentes having dinner with the former president of the United States. What's going on today and how should people think about it? I had to look a lot at at American history working on this book and at the history of anti-Semitism. And there were two things that struck me. One is that over time, anti-Semitism has always been present in the United States, but never at quite the levels that it would achieve from time to time in Europe. It's a little bit like we have a kind of a, a COVID vaccine, not the kind of vaccine that keeps you from catching a disease, but it keeps you from getting the worst possible case of the disease. So bad vaccine against anti-Semitism in the United States. But also what I see is that it's at moments of economic and social stress that anti-Semitism really flares. So in the 1880s and 1890s, the Industrial Revolution is happening. We have a series of major depressions and upheavals, massive immigration. So you get this populist anti-Semitism. Uh, this is you know, uh, William Jennings Bryan's famous speech that everybody says, oh, it's not a beautiful speech. It's an anti-Semitic dog whistle. This is outstanding. I Thou shalt it. not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Gee! What could <laughs> what, he be talking yes, about? Right, what possible reference is there? Um, and then again in the 1930s with the Depression, when you have a lot of people losing faith that the American system will ever work, you get people you know, on the right and the left. You get like Father Coughlin, the, the radio priest, uh, Gerald L.K. Smith, who was an associate of Huey Long, you, and you know, of course, uh, Henry Ford. You have these surges of anti-Semitism. You also have this upper-class anti-Semitism. You know, I, right. The story I remember, and I'm sure you came across it, was, you know, when, uh, I don't remember whether it was Eleanor or FDR's cousin was in charge of some uh, part of the immigration services, right? And was asked, can't you just take these Jewish children like the Brits did? Mm. said, well, I would, you know, but they'll grow into adults. I mean, anti-Semitism right. was very much at and the And I think both Franklin and Eleanor were kind of conventionally anti-Semitic as younger people. And I think they both actually did grow significantly. But, you know, just to our our earlier point, uh, having a lot of Jewish friends didn't necessarily make you pro-Zionist. The Morgenthau family were strongly anti-Zionist, and many of the Americans who argued hardest against the Balfour Declaration were Jews. So it's it's complicated, but yes, anti-Semitism, which is found you know, in the Ivy League and in the trailer parks, which is found in the far left and the far right, you think of the Ku Klux Klan and the Nation of Islam, two groups that have very little in common, but Jew hatred is one of them. If you were ever to see a, 
a trans activist and, a, and an Islamist gr- groups marching together, the chances are they're marching against Israel in right. some way. Mm-hmm. So I think ultimately the way that we, the best way to deal with anti-Semitism, obviously you have to, you have to counter the arguments that they make. You have to punish hate crimes, these kinds of things. But ultimately, if America gets on track, if America is working, then anti-Semitism and hatreds of all kinds fade. We are not a people who are sort of raised to hate. The American nation is multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi-racial, everything. And most of the time we're getting along or we're trying, we're trying to learn how to get along a little bit better. Amen. And when things go badly, when the economy is bad, when people begin to doubt that the American dream is real, then a kind of a disenchantment sets in and we tend to turn on each other. And we look for scapegoats. We've had some rough years, but I believe that the, the dynamism behind the United States is still there and we're going to come out of this period, you know, on the upswing again. And as that happens, I think we'll see a lot of these peddlers of hate and the hatreds they peddle moving back to the margins, which is where they really belong. Well, amen to that. I hope it's true. Okay, last half sentence, because I know you got to go, because you're actually the guest of AEI's president speaking. What is the Vulcan signal that Mr. Spock uses in Star Trek, and how is it Jewish? You know, people can't see me on the podcast, but you got two finger your 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 two fingers are separated on the hand, and this is a priestly blessing. You might know, Danny, more than I do. I am not Jewish unless somebody in my family pulls a Madeline Albright on me and tells me my genealogy is different from what I think. I'm just a sort of country Episcopalian from South Carolina, <laughs> so I don't know from all these Jewish things, but. What I, what I understand is that Dr. Spock's blessing was the Jewish a form of the Jewish priestly blessing, and it was part of the way that Leonard Nimoy was, was enjoying his role as a Vulcan. I love that. That is awesome. Well, we've covered everything from, from Kanye West to Star Trek to American history. This is a wonderful book. Uh, we will link to it in our podcast and a transcript and everything else, but thank you for taking the time, and thank you. Truly, and I say this from the bottom of my heart with my little Vulcan signal, thank you for writing it. Thanks, Dan. So, Mark, enough of me and Walter Russell Mead. What do you think about my interview with Walter Russell Mead? Yeah, you took full advantage of my uh, lack of presence. You know, even though I wasn't there, I felt like I was because you were attacking me all the time. So I'm glad oh, to you see are I'm such a gl- victim. Glad to see I'm living rent-free in your head, Danny. <laughs> God, what a gross image. <laughs> but seriously, folks, and plus, it, over the holiday season, just so our listeners understand, this is, you know, logistics are not that easy. We've got time differences going on. Danny's in Australia. So, uh... oh, yes, That's just because everybody needs you, to know, if, I'm in Australia. If you, if, you, uh, if you were wondering why her accent was coming out, it's because she's among her people. Oh, you have no idea, dude. Anyway, I'm so grateful to Walter f- for talking about you know this relationship based on you know on the merits, not on the mythology. But w- what did you think? I thought it was a great interview. I thought it was fascinating. I, I think his dissertation on the powerlessness of the Jews, <laughs> ironically, every time that people were attacking them for running the world and just going through the history of how powerless they were at different points in history to protect themselves or to protect the young state of Israel or to get the U.S. to do anything for them. I mean, it's just, he just destroys the myth of the uh, secret Jewish cabal that is running everything. And I think he's done a great service to the country and to the world by telling this story. I mean, obviously I agree with you, but what is remarkable to me is that it has taken this long for somebody to write a book that says that the relationship between America and Israel and the relationship between America and the Jewish people has absolutely nothing to do with the power of the Jews. 
has absolutely nothing to do with the power of Israel, the power of the state of Israel. And you and I have talked a lot about the Abraham Accords. Would you, think- would you just like dismiss <laughs> in that <laughs> interview? Like, oh, Mark, with his obsession with the Abraham Accords. Yeah, the first peace deal between Arab, Arab-Israeli peace deals in, uh, in 25 years. No big deal, Danny. No, I wasn't dismissing it uh, to the Yeah, country. you were. No, no. What? But what? I was not because of your because just like some people are obsessed with the Jews, you're obsessed with Donald Trump. I am not obsessed with Donald Trump. Yuck! You, you, and the bogus imagery. You are neither living rent free in my head, nor am I obsessed with Donald Trump. But, I think I'm in a nerve, folks. Uh, yeah. But in all seriousness, I think that. One of the reasons why Donald Trump was so successful in forging one of the first peace agreements between Israel and the Arab states in more than a quarter of a century was, in fact, that he was completely uninterested in most of these tropes. Right. He you know, you can't do that because the road to peace is through an Israeli-Palestinian settlement. Eh, whatever. You know, not interested in any of the tropes of history, not interested in any of the background of America's relationship with Israel. You know, where Barack Obama basically came into power, really kind of I don't want to say with antipathy, but certainly without sympathy for the state of Israel or for Israel's relationship with the United States. Donald Trump came in sort of, you know, whatever, you know, I'm from New York. Sure, let's go ahead. Why not? And managed to succeed where every one of his predecessors failed. And I think a lot of that was because he dismissed a lot of the tropes about the U.S.-Israel relationship and was just like, yeah, I don't care about that crap. Let's just do it my way. His lack of respect for convention was a double-edged sword, shall we say. <laughs> on the one hand, it produced... On the, the one hand, Nick Fuentes. <laughs> yes. I mean, well, I mean, it's just, it is amazing to me that the same man who moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, who took out, you know, Qasem Soleimani, the number one Iranian persecutor of, of Israel, uh, whose mission it was to destroy the state of Israel, who achieved the Abraham Accords and all the rest of it also was sitting and dining with these anti-Semites. I mean, it's just, it's mind-boggling to me, the you know, to hold these two things at the same time. But, but it is, to some extent, like you say, it's his, you know, four presidents promised to move the embassy to Jerusalem. He's the only one who did it. And it was because, you know, John Kerry said it would blow up, you know, set the Middle East into an inferno. It's like, he was like, no, it won't. And he did it. And it didn't. You know, so in one hand, it's why his presidency was so successful in certain ways. And on the other hand, it's why he blew himself up. You know, in many ways, he did so many great things as president. And this is why. But it's also why he destroyed himself. Now, and, it, the it's, it's, Party. It, and well, I don't know if he's destroyed the Republican Party yet. Maybe we'll get our act together and he's, figure it out before he's, 2024. He's but he's working on it. He's working on it. You know, and, you know, you have these people out there who, you know, cannot distinguish between their hatred for Donald Trump and their hatred for conservatism, and and they merge them into one thing. And it's really you have to be able to look at him objectively as president and say that he did these great things in the Middle East without and it doesn't mean you don't you can't recognize that he's an absolutely self-destructive, toxic you know, person who also did the things he did after the election and, and has descended into this caricature of himself. It's, they're both true, you know, but I mean, his achievements in the Middle East uh, in terms of peace. And by the way, where are the rest of the Abraham Accords? Because we were on the verge of having some more. Why isn't Saudi Arabia signed an Abraham Accord yet? Maybe it's because we have a new president who said he's going to make them a pariah, but is begging them for oil. It's, you know, I don't have multiple Abraham Accords by now. You don't understand. Venezuela is an important ally and supporter of the United States. And Saudi Arabia is an international pariah. Hey, I want to change the subject and ask you about one thing that Walter and I didn't discuss enough and that you and I haven't discussed enough on this podcast yet, which is the rise in anti-Semitism on college campuses. That is not a product of financial crises. That is not a product of uncertainty because of COVID. That is sui generis. 
What do you think is the root of the sort of rampant anti-Semitism on American college campuses? I mean, there's rampant anti-Semitism on the left. If you look in Congress, so who are the most virulent anti-Semites in Congress? It'd be Ilhan Omar's and the and the, the, the whole the squad. The squad. There is a virulent strain of anti-Semitism on the left. And so that's translated into you know, woke college students protesting. Every generation of college students has to have its uh, cause. And apparently divesting from Israel, the BDS movement, are the new cause for the left on college campuses. My son goes to Amherst. And the Amherst has a paper that basically just is a, this journal of, of unconventional ideas that is published. And they published a piece in defense of Hamas. I mean, what the hell? Hamas? Yeah. <laughs> the brutal, it's, it's, it's destructive terrorist organization. It's just, you know, I guess, you know, young people tend to get, you know, get stupiditis sometimes. And this is just, you know, hopefully they'll grow out of it. I am perfectly willing to tolerate the stupiditis, cute word, of young people on college campuses. What I am not willing to tolerate is the notion that somehow the rest of us are all, you know, racists, bigots, and haters, but that they are the vanguard of a better future that also includes them hating Jews. And, you know, we've had anti-Semitic incidents on Georgetown's campus. There isn't, I don't think there's a school that isn't going through this right now. And as best I can tell, the reaction of the administrations uh, in general, without specifics about one school or another, is, oh, you know, whatever. If people said about Black people what they say about Jews, there would be a national outcry. It's stunning. Well, there's certain forms of discrimination and bigotry that are acceptable and certain ones that are not. I mean, this is the irony of sort of the people who are telling us that we're a uh, bigoted nation, yet they're the bigots when it comes to certain groups. There's always been tolerance for certain forms of bigotry. People who complain most about certain forms of bigotry can be often be the most bigoted people themselves. It just depends on the group. I'm glad that we were able to do just a little bit to call this out and to talk about what I think Walter gets at, which is the the true heart of the relationship between America, the idea, as you always so nicely say, and the Jewish people, because it's two great tastes that taste great together. And Reese's peanut butter cups? Yes, that too. And <laughs> and America and the Jews. And, and, and America and the Jews are like chocolate and peanut butter. <laughs> that's a good combination. Uh, it is. <laughs> all right, it's late at night. But no, but listen. Anti-Semitism is anti-American. And that, I think, is the one thing that really comes through shining. And with that, we'll leave you till next week. Uh, Next week, Danny is away, and I'm going to be doing an interview by myself. We we have um, former Vice President Mike Pence joining the podcast. So we're looking forward to that. We hope you'll tune in. And thanks for joining us today. Take care, everyone. Bye. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.